Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Floor is rising. I am Sabertooth, and with me is Kizu. I'm a professional NFT collector, and Kizu is a professional art critic. On this podcast, we talk deeply about the business of creating, collecting, and analyzing NFTs. So if you are a creator or collector of NFTs, or you want to be, jump in. The water's warm. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Floyd's Rising. With us today, I have a special guest, Kenny Schachter. He's the renaissance man of art and now NFTs. He's been a collector, dealer, gallerist, writer, and now he's doing all those things and more in NFTs, which we'll get to in this episode. Kenny, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. How did you get into NFTs, Kenny? Tell us the story. I was never able to make a living in my art. And I was in a bunch of group shows. I curated shows all throughout the 90s into the early 2000s and always incorporated my work, but I never had a market. And the art world would never take me serious. I mean, it took them 10 to 15 years to take me to take me seriously enough as a writer that I would feel comfortable enough in my own skin to refer to myself as a writer. And only since the advent of NFTs did I feel more comfortable coming, coming out as an artist. So somebody brought up those three magical letters to me last September, about 14 months ago. And I didn't quite understand it or appreciate it because I was never a crypto person. I mean, art courses through my circulatory system, and I'm not a money person or a trader or anything like that. And I only ever did the business side of art to make a living. And that was my journalistic beat with my investigative reporting covering the art market because it's so opaque. Anyway, I found out about NFTs. And then at that point, it was before the onslaught where I say everyone and their grandmother became an artist. I even made an NFT of my grandmother and sold her, sold her too cheaply, I might add. And then I just walked into Nifty Gateway. I was introduced to Tommy Kimmelman, I think studied business at Stanford, but he was the curator at the time because he was probably the only employee of the company. So it wasn't too difficult because of my art experience and background and reputation. I was able to just sell a couple of NFTs. Last December was the first time. And then I wrote about it. I would say I was like, besides Kenny Scharf, who's a friend of mine, and we share the first nine letters of our name. I was probably the only person in the traditional, for lack of a better term, art world that immediately it occurred to me how nothing short of revolutionary that NFTs could be to the art world altogether, not just crypto, not just NFTs, but the art world. So I wrote about that in a journal called The Art Newspaper last January. And then I sold a bunch of NFTs for $4,000 last December. And I was just completely gobsmacked and I was. I was so pleased because it was to an audience I never had before. And although it's not, relatively speaking, a huge amount of money, it was a gift. And it was something that I've doggedly pursued since then. And not a day of my life has been the same since. What do you make of the kind of decorum, I guess, or like Mm -hmm. the unwritten rules, social rules, the kind of etiquette, you know, these kinds of things that govern in a way, the crypto and NFT art space compared to uh, the contemporary art world? Art is about communication. Art cannot exist in a vacuum. Art needs an audience to finalize the equation, which is that art is a means of human self-expression and communication. So a Van Gogh in a forest does no one any good 
except for the birds and the coyotes. But art is about communication. And what I love about NFTs as much as being able to, the economic benefit and attribute of being able to make a living from the thing that I care about the most besides my kids, it's that I have met the most extraordinary group of people. And it reminds me specifically of when I first started in the fine art world, I'm an outsider from day one. I never took an art class in my life till I conned my way into a teaching position at the new school in 1992. Just basically, I've always ever taught to teach myself to learn. Same with writing. If I'm going to an art fair to make a living, if I'm going to write about it, it means I pay a hell of a lot more attention to be able to tell the story of what's happening and to dig to find out what's happening behind the scenes and who's buying, selling, screwing each other, which is often everybody. Look, I made this crypto mud PFP and profile picture collection of NFTs, and it was meant as a satire. So I think it was probably lost on a lot of people. And I'm as critical about my myself as I am about anything else. And I probably could have communicated it better or done a better job in effectuating it. We had a lot of false starts and metadata confusions. But the point was I was taking the penguins and the apes and the punks and the chickens, eagles, unicorns, mushrooms, fungi. Every day there's a potato and another. So the idea was to just make a joke about it, stick them in a blender and spit out 10,000 conceptual satires on this whole concept. So right now, like the punks have set a precedence and are historically the first, and everyone has aped them since. And you could buy masterpiece NFTs from brilliant people that are one of ones, $35, but no one's interested because right now everyone just wants to use PFPs as a surrogate substitute for a digital currency and a security, even though that's the no-no from the regulatory stance. Look, I mean, you can say there's a bad sense of humor in NFTs because there's brilliant, hilarious people that are poking fun at themselves and the system regularly. You just have to look like anything and, you know, take the time. Art is a slow burning process. And let's just say technology happens not at the speed of sound or the speed of light, but it's its own special theory of relativity. Technology unfolds at a glaring, rapid pace that is almost near impossible for any human to keep up with it. And nevertheless, the most important thing, whether it's NFTs or anything else, in relationship to art, art is and remains a slow burning process of accruing knowledge and information and experience. I mean, art is one of the things that like, the more you look, the more you appreciate. Christopher Wool, who's a painter who made this piece that you probably can't see behind me that says spokesman, which is just a poster. If it was on paper or aluminum, it would be well into the millions of dollars. But he made a piece called The Harder You Look, The Harder You Look. And that's what NFTs are. That's what crypto is as a community and as a concept. And you have to look. You have to develop your sensibility. And the more you look into things and the more you research what artists are doing in the NFT space amongst all the noise and the static, you find funny people, sad people, brilliant people, people of all stripes doing some of the most relevant you know, touching and significant art ever made. A broader theme you talked about is kind of the tension, I think, that a lot of artists feel right now between PFP collectible. You said that you sort of satirically created one, uh, the Crypto Muts. 
I think Jerry Saltz also satirically created uh, uh, one that, that sort of made fun of Beeple, but that kind of sold for a huge amount of money as well. And so that sort of NFT collectible series is, is definitely by far the best-selling sort of NFTs right now. And, and then you talked about how there are some artists who are creating sort of wonderful one-on-ones that sort of nobody is paying attention to right now. You know, the, the biggest narrative right now in, in crypto art is, is about historical sort of OG art, right? So CryptoPunks is valuable because they're a historical art piece. And then we we can even get into, you know, what uh, Three Hours Capital and, and the Starry Night Fund uh, is currently doing, which is they're sort of determining, you know, some of these OG crypto artists as being sort of historical people like Xcopy, Coldy, Beeple, and they are going for a lot of money right now as well. And a huge part of of that thesis is that they were the earliest park. They were the earliest sort of artists sort of to come onto the, the crypto art scene, you know, back in 2018. And this seems to parallel, you know, the, the fact that Bitcoin is the oldest cryptocurrency, therefore it's worth the, the most money. But from what you're saying, it sounds like that's not quite the thesis that, that you believe will take hold or that will take hold as more, sort of traditional art people come into the NFT scene. Um, can you talk about you know, what, what you think of that thesis and, and how you think that will play out over time? I believe there are pockets of overvaluation where things become, like I said, nothing's art is a slow burning process. And you see today in the fine art market, like traditional art market or NFT market, NFTs like people selling for $69 million. If that piece was reintroduced into the market today, there's a hell of a good chance it would go for significantly less than that, than that, knowing what we do, knowing information about some of the content of those images in the 5,000s. So there are always going to be pockets, like I said, of, of things that have unrealistic overvalued price that reflects fashions or various manipulations that exist equally in, whenever there's a lot of money around this cesspool of corruption, you know, no more or less in crypto than in Picasso. Whenever so, there's a bell's curve of morality and integrity and ethics in the world. So I think that look, there's so many damn PFP projects. I can guarantee you that within three years, two years, or a year, I mean, we're going to see a new trend anytime soon where PFPs are going to be completely frowned upon by the market, and 90% of them are going to not constrict but evaporate, as they well should. I mean, hopefully mine won't, because my mutts were meant to be something multifaceted, like, yes, a satire of the very PFPs, which they are, but also they're a ticket, a ticket to my writing, which had a substantial reduction to the subscription price of Artnet, which I never really spoke to my editor about. And also I'm working out a whole host of different things. I really want to create a community. The Board Ape Yacht Club have really sharp, crisp, graphics and are selling for millions, but appreciate everything. So I don't want to come off as being overly critical or not appreciative because I appreciate everything. But three and a half million for this ape seems to me absurd. And what's the community is they have a couple of drinking parties and then you get to buy like a branded basketball if you own the, the ape. But again, like all of these communities have all of these PFPs have their own supporters and communities do spring from all of them. But I'm hoping to kind of, in a very subtle, non-didactic, I don't want to force my education or my history and my 
absolute love and appreciation for all things art. I don't want to force that down anybody's throat, but I have been in the art world for 33 years, clawing my way painstakingly to whatever position I'm in. I don't think I'm in any special position other than I've achieved an audience because I work very hard and, and I love art so much. I think that the PFPs in it, eventually they're going to get whacked because there's too many. They have no meaning. Everyone's just trying to copy what's been successful. And one last thing about when I first saw the punks, I was like, I hated them. But again, like some of the art that I absolutely veer the most and have learned to appreciate, even Warhol I hated when I first got it. I thought a lot of art, like conceptual painting, like Christopher Wool or Richard Prince, I just felt that there was such a kind of removal of this kind of hands-on tactile approach to creativity. And I just didn't like it. And when I first saw the punks, I thought it was the stupidest thing I've ever seen. And I've come to really learn and to appreciate what it was, the context of when it came about and what it signifies. And I mean, I wouldn't pay $10 million for one unless I was worth billions, which I'll never be. But I really have come to understand them and rate them. And for the kind of, you know, um, paradigm shifting project that it was at the given time that it came out at the end of 2017. The 6 million other PFPs are the majority of which are very questionable. So I think in the next six months to a year, fashions are going to shift. Already you have like art blocks, generative uh, NFTs, which come from generative photography and computer art in the 60s and 70s. There's a deep history and precedent for this kind of work. And I think, you know, this market changes swiftly and it can't be soon enough when these things stop. It's enough. It's pollution at this point. The people who are influential in crypto NFT art right now, they may not know as much as people in the traditional art world. Their art history may be a bit patchy, but they will equally want to you know, beef up their knowledge on that front because it's going to be a kind of two-way street. But what I, and maybe Table Truth as well, I think both of us seem to get the sense that it's not really a two-way street. So yourself, obviously, as someone with extensive experience uh, in the traditional art world in many roles, has come, I guess, also in a kind of accelerated way to learn kind of the from the ground up how Discord works, how that kind of discourse or that dialogue operates. But in our experience, we haven't seen too many examples of NFT artists and collectors who profess an interest or an inclination to engage, you know, with what they call boomer art. I mean, not all of it. Can you repeat that? What they call what art? Boomer, boomer art. Like they say that (laughs) we're not going to collect any art that's, you know, basically belongs to a generation that... You call Rembrandt boomer art or Pablo Picasso or... Well, it's not... So it's... Come on, take it easy now there, Tiger. (laughs) That's not my word. That's not my word. Um, Literally, let me just, I can step in right now. I mean, look, here's something really, here's something really important. (laughs) So, you know, you mentioned so many interesting things. You guys are amazing (laughs) questions and really making me sweat a little here uh, (laughs) with the depth of your amazing insights that are, I mean, I just love to learn. So here's the story. Okay, so Beeple was at Christie's three days ago, and he made a sculpture, which has an NFT element, 
But first and foremost, it's speaking the language of what you'll call boomer art. It could be a Damien Hurst vitrine or a Jeff Koons tank of basketballs. So Mr. Beeple has now made a sculpture where the NFT is secondary to the primary import. Um, the formal construction of this work is a sculpture, first and foremost. And then somebody made a comment that it looks like um, an Alberto Giacometti sculpture, The Walking Man. And people replied like he didn't know who it was. He's also made comments when he was really, uh, as they say in the UK, like chuffed with himself when he sold his piece for untold sum of money. He said art history is stupid, which is, I mean, you can't make a dumber, narrow-minded or idiotic statement than that. So here's the story. Like there are a lot of people in the crypto world that don't give a flying fuck about the fine art, traditional art world. They don't care who Larry Gagosian is, Hauser and Worth is, Barbara Gladstone, David Werner, Aquavella, Pace, all the kind of like upper echelon of entrenched, you know, power brokers within the traditional art world. A lot of crypto collectors, art makers, crypto artists do not care, do not know. And look, it's a free world and that's their prerogative. In the traditional art world, there's a lot of people, most people, do not give a rat's ass about NFTs and often dismiss them. So there's a couple of things working here. Like human, it's, I always, I've said this before, but I'll say it quickly. It's a defense mechanism. It's a human survival instinct that when something changes, the first response is to push back or to put something down, dismiss it. People are fearful of change. It uproots our status quo, our sense of you know, security. So the art world is scared of crypto and crypto scared of art history. You know, and all the, everyone should do whatever they want. I'm a very laissez-faire uh, person who, even though I could be critical, like, you know, yes, I'm critical, I'm a critic, but people have to understand that I'm critical about myself and I'm not, I, there's one thing I hate more than anything, it's elitism and arrogance, which I rail against the hypocrisy of the art world is suffocating nothing short of it. So personally, I don't know what even what a boomer is, but I'm a very open-minded individual. I taught myself post-war art very quickly by going to Sotheby's, going to Christie's, going to Germany, traveling all over the world, going to studios, going to museums, going to galleries, literally hitting the pavement and doing the legwork. However, there was a gaping hole in the breadth of my knowledge, and I knew nothing about the history of art before World War II, about the Renaissance, about old masters, about cave art, for Christ's sakes. So either I was just going to be a, you know, a pretentious kind of person who made art, curated shows, and, you know, dipped into the contemporary art world, or I was going to roll my sleeves up and take the time to learn. There's two examples taking traditional contemporary artists. One is Tom Sachs, and one is Urs Fisher. Tom Sachs is an American artist who's pretty successful, does a lot of commercial stuff too. He made an NFT and he started a Discord and he learned to speak NFTism talk. And he's his NFTs, the Rocket Project has- Rocket has, Factory. Whatever. <laughs> I'm not a great <laughs> fan of them, but they skyrocketed. As right. they should, because he paid close attention to the ways and means of the NFT community. Urs Fisher, who has sold a piece at auction for $7 million and has pieces in 
Francois Pinault's new museum in Paris right now, he did an NFT project with Maker's Place called Chaos, and I own one, but he he's too busy and didn't take the time to jump in to Discord and Twitter. Find the traditional contemporary art world lives on Instagram and NFT world lives on Twitter and Discord. And so you see a disparity in like, look, if you want to be people and just make money, you know, apparently he changed his mind and he's taking an art history class now, all the power to him. You know, I think that's noble. I could have just made NFTs and just rested on my laurels as a pub. I've written for MIT. I curated shows in museums and galleries all over the world and, you know, been on documentaries and the BBC. I could have just made NFTs and sat back and said, I've been making digital art for 28 years. Fuck it, I'm making NFTs. No, that's not the way that I live. That's not, I live, I, I practice what I evangelize about. I spent every single day of the past 14 months learning, whether it's studying, reading, speaking to engineers in the tech sector. I have a friend in Singapore who works at Google. I have a friend who's a world's foremost expert on generative photography for the 50s and 60s. I am a little baby trying to learn spelling and a new language. And I, I not only accept it, I embrace it because I love to learn, whether it's about the history of fine art in which I'm self-taught or about the ins and outs of smart contracts and metadata, which I've been a fast study about. So, you know, these worlds will not only cross over. I made a video where I'm making fun of like a Pace Gallery is one of the established OG art galleries, and they've created Super Blue, which is an experiential art tech sector with Lauren Jobs, Steve Jobs' widow. And they do these tech buildings with art that bombard you with sensory explosions. Uh, and that's a business. And they're also opening an NFT platform as are many, you know, at first the galleries cringe and fight it and complain and talk shit about it. As soon as they see the money, ka-ching, ka-ching, within two years, every major art gallery will have their own NFT platform, 100% guaranteed. That's happening right now. Let's talk about the the speed of, uh, I guess, mainstream adoption. A lot of the artists that are currently selling at Christie's and Sotheby's have only been in the game for months. <laughs> some, 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 some of them. What, what do you see as a consequence of this such sort of like a meteoric rise of NFTs in such a short space of time? To the, I mean, Christie's and Sotheby's are the, are the gatekeepers of the art world, and now they are sort of attempting to become, some some would say they have become the gatekeepers of the NFT world as well. The NFT market will eclipse. The fine art market is 64 billion, I think, last year. And NFTs are on track to eclipse that in a, two years, I would say, maybe less, maybe a bit more. But the point is this, for all the artists that you mentioned that are getting crazy prices, there's 20 million NFT artists that are floundering. You can't just, you could be, you know, again, like you could be digital Picasso or digital Dali, and you could rock up and try to sell an NFT and forget it. You'll get lost in the sea of open sea. Uh, the only people that can sell NFTs are either people that have been around for a while or people that are famous or have a following. And same thing in the, in the contemporary art world. It's important to appreciate that there are artists that in the 1800s were selling for a couple hundred grand, which would translate into millions and millions of dollars 
in today's money that subsequently tanked. So just because you're seeing certain NFT artists sell into the millions, that is most definitely not going to sustain itself because like I said, and I'll say it a hundred times, history is not instantaneous. Yes, technology transforms with, you know, at the speed of whatever I said it quickly. Nevertheless, for to digest things, put them into a historical context, takes by necessity, history is time. That's what history is. It's academics or, or experts, whether it's crypto academics, NFT scholars, and there are these things. There are people that have been making crypto art since the advent of crypto. But again, like why is a 276-year-old company at the forefront of NFTs? And it's a very simple question. It's a very simple answer. And it goes back to what I said. The fine art world was fucking petrified about what? About losing money. The fine art world, the traditional art world was petrified and mortified about losing territory. It's a zero-sum economic game where the art world is small in relationship to Apple or Microsoft or Facebook, Google, all those companies. The art world is just a pimple on the butt of the world's economy. I have found there's one artist, her name is Eva Berrison. I'm enamored of her work. I wrote her a letter, you 20 or 80, what are you, straight, gay, kids, family? Where are you coming, where are you? What are you thinking about? I love your art, what, who are you? And she turned out to be a 64-year-old woman, Hungarian, living in Vienna, showing in a sleepy little gallery with no art market. And I just went nuts for her work and showcased it in show after curatorial project and stuck it into fairs and showed my friends and put it on Instagram. And now she's a star, nothing short of an art star. Her life has been upended. But there was a way for artists to get their work seen on Instagram and social media, but they still had to rely on this outdated system of galleries to sell their work if they weren't selling it to their friends. They'd have to appeal to these established entities, i.e. galleries. Then along came NFTs and the most, the biggest rupture in what an NFT is, is it's a 24 seven marketplace, even though it has gatekeepers, whether it's Nifty Gateway, Foundation, Maker's Place, Known Origin, Artblocks, um, all these spaces where you have to be super rare, they, have, they all have their own gatekeepers. So to think naively that, oh, NFTs are this like, you know, anarchistic free-for-all where everyone could dip in and make a fortune, that's bullshit. Nor should it really be like that. However, the auction houses have usurped all of this impetus away from the demo galleries because the auction houses don't give a fuck about anything other than making money. So the auction houses immediately, uh, it appealed. I mean, the story was like, there was a young girl working at Christie's, Megan Doyle, I think her name is, or something very similar. She had the idea to sell an NFT. She called Maker's Place and they suggested people. And then when the whole explosion, nuclear conflagration transpired, she opted out of the whole game and Noah Davis stepped in and he's become the kind of poster child of you know, the star of the NFT marketplace at the auction houses. And another guy who is now based in Hong Kong for Sotheby's, Max Moore, is the equivalent. The only reason the auction houses are now the primary sellers, I mean, it's great. This never happened. I mean, whenever an artist sold their shit at Sotheby's or Christie's, they did it hyper, super secretly. David Hammonds is an African-American artist who's been doing it for 20 years, but they do it on down low, very quietly below the radar. Jeff Koons 
Nobody knows, but I'll give you some inside information. He's been selling his shit through private treaty at Sotheby's for years, and nobody knows about it, even when he had representation. However, for the first time, the auction houses are nimble because galleries have this pseudo-intellectual pretend erudite is a word of like super smart and hard to understand and complex. So galleries act like they're doing the world a favor, like by, you know, explaining art and, and, and you know, they nurture careers and they, they are the gate, they control access of who gets to buy an artist that people want to buy. End of discussion. So the art galleries are very territorial and they, they didn't want to give away the power to the artist or to anyone else. Sotheby's and Christie's want to make money. They're not pretending to be fake institutions like galleries do. They couldn't care less. So they just jumped in because ka-ching, ka-ching, they heard the sounds of the money. And that's why you have a situation today. I, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the concrete examples that you've mentioned. There was an article in your Artnet column where you mentioned or you kind of had a list of some of the smaller NFT marketplaces or platforms that you, I assume you endorse or you think are quality. There's stuff like Left Gallery, Folia, Feral File, uh, yes. Crypto Wiener. So I had a look at some of them and I found that, you know, there, there's obviously, I guess it speaks to your taste as a collector and an artist. There's quite a wide range so, for example, Crypto Wiener is basically pixel art that's made with this, they kind of call it like a Viennese sense of humor, right? Uh, reminds me a little bit of gelatin and that kind of slapstick humor. But anyway, so that you have that, uh, which is a kind of like comic retelling of important moments in crypto art and NFT art history using very low resolution pixel art. And then we have Feral File, which actually I found very interesting in the sense that it, out of the examples you mentioned, it seems like it's the one platform or website that most resembles a traditional gallery. So they have guest curators, uh, even the language of the website is stuff that you'd find in a press release or, a, or an essay by a critic, right? It talks about the art almost in the sense of like a wall text. So you have the art, you can actually view the file right away and, and view the price history and stuff like that. So, so we have like, on the one hand, something that's very kind of crypto native, very, you know, like of its, of its medium. And the feral file example is something that really seems to smack to me of a legacy kind of structure in the art world where it's basically a gallery like shilling its work right so my question is really like how do you see obviously for you for kenny like you can have a taste that runs the gamut so you can like both of them but my question is really like how do you see the balance between these two types of platforms uh moving forward do you think that one will be largely predominant or do you think that both types will be able to kind of coexist. I live in New York City right now. And on the Lower East Side, there could be, I would say there's, I'm pulling numbers out of hat, but they're not far-fetched, 500 contemporary art galleries. In Tribeca, another neighborhood downtown as well, there's at least 500 more galleries. All of them are among the world. I mean, I'm not just talking about shit commercial airport galleries. And then in Chelsea, there's a thousand galleries, another neighborhood not too far from the other two I just mentioned. And then on the Upper East Side is yet another area. And that's not even going to Brooklyn, where there's another 2,000 galleries. So 
The art world, forget crypto for now, has grown more in the last 25 years than the previous 250 years. Social media has been a good part of why, because people, it's easier to communicate, it creates interest, it creates excitement, and it broadens the market and sucks more people into the frame. Crypto has exponentially increased that by you know twofold, threefold. So in the best of all worlds, the whole fucking world would be artists and not these horrible politicians that are destroying the world and so much inequality and racism. And in America alone, like almost having a civil war two years ago. And I think that ultimately art needs to speak for itself. My ideal studio visit with artists would be just the art in the room and not the artist, because of course it's great to meet the artist, but what if you hate the artist and love the art or love the art, vice versa? So, I mean, the thing is that we live in a very plural society and the best thing about NFTs are this kind of melting away at these hideous ingrained hierarchies that are so prevalent in the traditional art world of you know, and these hypocrisies and these barriers to entry. And the best thing about NFTs, I, just through my lecturing, my writing and, and, and being accessible. I mean, I tell every single person in the world, which is gonna be the death of me, literally, that if you have a question, ask me. The art world knows one word and it's N-O. The art world loves to shut people down, tell people what they could say, what they could do and how they should do it. And you can never, it's like the mafia's romantic system where if you dare tell a secret or tell, explain the way the business functions, the mafia business, you get your head cut off. So the art world very much resembles such a system. And my goal or what gives me as much satisfaction as making a living from my own art is helping somebody else to do it. So I encourage anybody who's listening to this, if they're, if, People don't. If it, if you haven't fallen asleep yet, send me a DM. Slip into my into whether it's Twitter, Instagram, email, Discord. Ask me a question, and if, if there's any way I can help or answer, as long as you like, say hello and please some basic you know human manners. I will do anything I can to give advice and to help people. So I have enabled literally hundreds of people to do what I've done, to make a living from their, their life's passion, making art. And that really inspired, I inspire other people and it inspires me to do so. So in that regard, for whether it's like, you know, maybe some of these platforms talk too much heavy art rhetoric and that doesn't do anyone ever any good. But look, this is all about find, finding art that is attractive to you at an affordable price. There's an artist called Sarah Friend she is Canadian. She lives in Berlin. She studied painting. Then she taught herself to code. Then she spent years giving back to the community and helping people like get access to technology. And she sells NFTs and sometimes they're as cheap as, you know, $35. So, or, or Ray Myers, who used to go by the name Rob Myers since transition, or Osanachi in Nigeria. There's so many incredible artists that appeal to all sensibilities, you know, whether it's computer, mentality like Kevin Abash or more there's art for everyone in all places and the more platforms there are that people can access and mint their own work for affordable prices and you know look you're always going to have to hustle nothing will ever play 
will replace work, legwork, grunt work. There's no such thing as a quick fix or a free lunch, you know, and then nor should there be. So as long as there are the means at disposal for people to try and to get access, that's all you can hope for. Kenny, before we uh, let you go, final question. Who is your favorite artist? Well, I mean, there's too many brilliant people for me to ever answer that question. But I mean, one of my favorite artists is a man called Paul Tech. Paul Tech was an artist who made art. He crafted these sculptures that resembled a chunk of flesh, whether it was meat or, or part of a body that was dismembered. And he put it into this kind of minimalist, uh, clinical vitrine. And it, for me, as in our work, that really encapsulates, art is about life and death. Art, like without art, I couldn't live. I've been through some horrendous personal tragedies. I lost one of my kids two and a half years ago. I would have been absolutely incapacitated were it not for art that, that helped sustain me in these really difficult, continually troubled emotional times for me. And Paul Tech made a sculpture in the 60s called Technological Reliquaries. He used the word technology, his, his name is T-H-E-K, pronounced tech. So very well, he could have been making a play on the sound of his own name, but he made these things that were encapsulated. So they were seductive and repulsive. They depicted the fragility of life. When you're young, like you guys, you think you could live forever and party and drink and stay up all night and nothing will ever, like you can, nothing will ever stop you. And then you get sick or you get to be older and everyone's taking a pill, which is why Damien Hirst's work has relevance because he made spot paintings that, that reference pills. And when you get to be older, everyone's on a pill of one sort or another. But Paul Tech made these pieces that Damien Hirst probably didn't even know about when he put his dead animals into boxes. And Paul Tech made this art that really freezes the moment between life and death that highlights the fragility and the vulnerability that we all experience as human beings. Sadly, he left, he had some recognition as a younger artist showing at Pace Gallery in the 60s. And he didn't, he was restless. Art is about curiosity and about challenging yourself. So some artists like late Jeff Koons and late Damien Hirst, I think they kind of suck because they're just making bubbles for rich people. And Paul Tech or Vito Acconci is another artist that I really like. These artists never settle. The art world affirms success. Success affirms success. Contrary to this like romantic notion that, you know, people want a unique artwork. Nobody wants a unique artwork. Everybody wants something that looks remarkably similar to the last artwork that sold for a lot of money. That's what people like, like sheep. So Paul Tech never settled. He always challenged himself. He never got into one set when the when someone referred to him as the meat artist. He never made another piece like that again. Then he left America to, to, to live abroad and to enrich his experiences through integrating with other cultures and other jurisdictions. And when there was no social media, if you were outside of one of the major art centers, you were dead. You didn't exist. So when he came back to New York at the latter part of his life, he was destitute and worked in a supermarket. He had one drawing in the U.S. Museum at that time, and now there's a piece at a gallery, which was for two and a half million, and I curated a show at Pace Gallery, and the museum bought a sculpture for over a million dollars. Again, it's a giant misconception. Success does not equate to content and to great art. 
Great art is cheap. Vito Conchi is another conceptual artist who died poor as could be. Lifestyles of the poor and famous who made, I mean, he masturbated under the floor of a gallery as a sculpture. He did a lot of crazy things, but he basically destroyed the definition, the formal construct of what art is. You know, Marcel Duchamp put a urinal in a gallery and Vito Acconci blew that up 10 times further by, by trying to create art that could never be absorbed into the marketplace. There are crypto artists that I really respond to. I mentioned Raya Myers, Sarah Friend, Kevin Abash, Osanachi. There's loads. There's so many great artists. Kenny Shackle, thank you for joining us on the latest episode of Floyd's Rising. Thank you very much, Kenny. Thank you so, so much for listening. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Floyd's Rising. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe, follow, and give us a review on your favorite podcast app. Remember to also follow us on Twitter at Floor is Rising. You can reach out to us, send us a question, and just send us a DM on Twitter at Floor is Rising. <laughs>